hey, grab a Bible. You're going to need it. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Grab a Bible in front of you if you don't have one. And turn over to Daniel chapter 9. And as you're turning there, uh, some of you, many of you, uh, made mention uh, that you were praying for us this week because on Wednesday we were not here at Awana. Uh, I, I rushed home because Bennett swallowed a Lego. And uh, so it, it was a little bit of a panic in the Anderson household. He swallowed this Lego piece. It, it was long and very, very skinny. Um, but it went down, and my wife freaked out like any good mom. And uh, she said, come home right now. And uh, so I rushed home, and we, you know, we, we called some doctors, called the urgent care, you know, called around, and they said, okay. You know, they gave us about five, maybe seven signs to look for. You know, some of them said, well, come right in. And then others said, no, no, just wait. And uh, we called Nurse Colleen Bacon down here, and she helped us too. And so we, we went through these five or six or seven signs to see if anything was going to happen to him. And we watched him closely all night, and thankfully nothing happened. But then, of course, the next day, you're, you know, you're kind of, uh, you're, well, you're waiting for something to pass. And, uh, and you know, the first go-around... There was nothing in there. And uh, I won't get into details, um, but, uh, you know, the first go-around, there was nothing to pass. And then uh, the second go-around was just the other day. And uh, so we, you know, we, we, we uh, how shall I put this? You know, we carefully inspected the second go-around, and it was not we? It, it was you? What, you mean, what, wait, what did I do, honey? I ran out of the room while my wife inspected the second go-around. And sure enough, lo and behold, it passed. The Lego passed. Now, this isn't exactly Sunday morning talk, I realize that, but it proves a point. It proves a point. You see, in the Anderson household, in the last few days, we were waiting for something to pass. Just wait for it. Just wait for it. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel is waiting for something to come about. He's waiting for something to happen. In fact, he's told us as much at the start of Daniel 9. Turn to Daniel 9 and look at the start of this chapter. It says in verse 2, in the first year of, of Darius's reign, he's speaking of, a, of a, a Persian king, I, Daniel, understood by the books, that is the Scriptures, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. What's he speaking about there? Daniel is saying, I understood as I opened up the books of the Old Testament that he had in his hand, the writings of, of the law and the prophets that he had, Jeremiah in particular, he said, I realized as I read them that there were going to be 70 years of desolation in Jerusalem. And Daniel was waiting for that day to come to an end. <clears throat> He was waiting for that day to come to an end, but he was concerned. You see, because the 70 years of exile in Babylon was almost up. And as Daniel opened up the Jeremiah scrolls and read about these 70 years, he was concerned that the time of exile that was supposed to pass after 70 years, that it would not he was concerned that God would look upon the nation of Israel in Babylon, in exile, and yet give them a longer exile because of their sin and because of their wickedness. Look what he does in verse 3. He says, Then I set my face to the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant, and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. 
What is he asking God to do there? He's reminding God. He says, you said, you said only 70 years and we'll get out of Babylon. Oh Lord, keep your covenant. And then turn a little bit further down the road. Turn to verse 18. In verse 18 of chapter 9 of Daniel, he continues his prayer and he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city, Jerusalem, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications, our requests, before you because of our righteous deeds. Oh no. But because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. The setting, the setting of Daniel 9 is a setting in which Daniel is waiting for something to pass. And it's not like what we were waiting for in the Anderson household. But it stinks just as bad. It is 70 years. Oh, I know. I didn't have that one written down. It stinks just as bad. It was 70 years of exile, of slavery, of being away from your homeland. And Daniel was praying, Oh God, let this pass. Be true to your covenant. Be true to your promise. And he continues praying, and we come to verse 20. Now, we haven't been in the book of Daniel in a while. So we're coming in and I'm trying to lay the foundation again. We come to verse 20 and he continues his praying. And watch what happens. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reach me about the time of the evening offering. Who is this Gabriel? Well, we've seen him before. We've seen him in the previous chapter of Daniel when he came to give Daniel aid. He is an angel of God. And this is really the first mention of the angel Gabriel, who was also the angel that happened to visit uh, during the time of the birth of Christ. That same angel appears for the first time here in the book of Daniel. And as, as Daniel is praying and speaking and praying and confessing his sin and the sin of Israel and reminding God of his covenant, Gabriel comes. He flies swiftly. And he reaches me about the time of the evening offering, which is to say in the late afternoon. Let's continue in verse 22. And he informed me and he talked with me and he said, Oh, Daniel. I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And he's about to lay something out for me. But before, for, for all of us. But before we get there, notice, notice what it says there in verse 22 and 23. Notice that at the st- Gabriel says something that I, I find just very significant. He says, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. He says in verse 23, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. When you started to pray, Daniel, the Lord God directed me to go to you. And we just just had an answer to prayer that we didn't even know about with the, the playground being released from customs in Haiti. You know, when the, when the prayers go up, the command of God goes out. Amen? When the prayers go up, the command of God goes out. And, Dan, and Gabriel says, hey, I came to you right when you got on your knees to pray. Now, that doesn't mean the answer is always going to be a, a pleasant answer for us, right? But it does mean that once you go down on your knees to pray, God reacts. He responds to you. He sends you help. He sends you comfort. He sends you guidance. And Gabriel confirms this. He says, Daniel, when you started requesting this, when you started requesting God to act, He sent me to you. And that should give us comfort. He says, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And he's about to give a vision. And this vision, friends, is um, 
a vision that is very unique in all of Scripture. It's known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. And thus, the title of my message there on your handout today um, is the 70 weeks of Daniel. I've uh, given it a subtitle, Part 1, Lots of Questions and One Big Clue. So the 70 weeks of Daniel, lots of questions and one big clue. Now, before we read this vision, I, I need to give a little bit of a, of a disclaimer, of a primer. And, and I, don't, I don't often like giving disclaimers, uh, but I'm going to give one here. And it is this. Um, verses 24 to 27 of Daniel 9 are among the most difficult portions of Scripture that there is. Um, many scholars point to this passage of Scripture and say this is the hardest portion of Scripture in all of the Bible. And I agree with that after having studied this. Um, uh, I, I've been through this before. I'm going through it again. I, was, uh, I, was, I spent uh, a day at the Biola Library up, uh, up in the north, uh, just immersed in books and writings in consideration of all the various ways in which this prophecy can be interpreted. All that is to say that as we come to this text, we come to it humbly. Um, there have been many scholars and churches and traditions uh, that some of which come down very dogmatically on the interpretation of Daniel 9. Um, I find that to be a bit presumptuous because as we read through this together, um, I want to show you the painstaking ways in which we need to be careful as we interpret it. I want to show, I, I really, I told my wife this morning, I said, you know, kind of interacting, what are we going to do this morning? I said, I want the people of the church to feel my pain in going through this text. I really do. I want you to feel how difficult this is. I want you to feel how, how significant of a passage this is, but also how careful we ought to be in interpreting it and in making strong statements about its significance for biblical prophecy. So our goal today is, is to ask a lot of questions about the text. We're not going to get to a lot of answers today. That's going to come, Lord willing, next week. Uh, I'd like to you know, bring a lot more clarity to the text next week. But today, I want us to feel that tension. The tension of coming to a text that is very difficult in the Scripture. And ultimately, we can be sure that the Holy Spirit's guiding us. He is enlightening our eyes. He's showing us the way forward. So let's prayerfully consider this portion of Daniel. I want to read it one time through, and then I want to go through a series of questions and have us kind of fill in some blanks here. So one time through. This is the vision that Gabriel gave to Daniel as Daniel was waiting for that exile to be over. And this is what Gabriel says to Daniel. Verse 24 all the way to 27. He says, Daniel, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end for sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Therefore, know, know therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. And the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. Verse 26. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. I'm reading from the New King James Version for any of you that may have a different version. And I want to come here, I want to approach each verse independently. Thankfully, each verse is somewhat of a self-sustaining unit. So the, the markations of our Bibles are somewhat helpful here. Let's look again at verse 24. Gabriel says, he gives, he gives a vision to Daniel. And he says, Daniel, 
Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end for sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now on your outline, we're going to go through some questions. Um, I'm going to be asking the questions and I want you this week to consider these questions as you go home in your own personal study in the Word. But the first question that I, I come to as I approach this text is this. And actually, some of this is a statement here. But it says, the term weeks, or the Hebrew word sabuim, means group of seven. Group of seven. Go ahead and write that down. Seven. Thus, 70 weeks could mean 70 days, 70 weeks, 70 years, or even 70 weeks of years, which is 490 years. And the question is, and this is the first question dictates so much of this passage. The question is, what group of seven does Gabriel mean? What group of seven does Gabriel mean? Now, if you, uh, if you, pens- if you got a pen or pencil, I want you to write in the, 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 the reference Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. And as you go home uh, this week and study the matter, Leviticus 25 is perhaps one of the most helpful passages that helps us to identify the answer to this question. And I'm going to lean toward the 70 weeks of years, which is to say 490 years. And we're going to explain why in the forthcoming uh, study. But for today, we're just asking questions about the text. We're seeing how do we observe this text. A second question is this. Well, seven is a symbolic number in Israel. Very symbolic. It's used to indicate the what? The Sabbath. Right? Or completion, right? The Sabbath. So does 70 weeks or 77s, as it's, some, as it's referred to in some of your Bibles, does it refer to some kind of Sabbath rest? Seven, the, word, the, the, the number seven has the idea of completion. And then also, if you look at the story of creation, has the idea of rest. If you look at the Jewish calendar, it has the idea of a Sabbath rest, one day of the week. On the last day of the week, there was to be, uh, there was to be a, a Sabbath rest. Well, really, uh, it was considered the first day of the week. But there was considered to be a, a Sabbath rest, a time to rest from all work and to give God His due. Might seven have some significance there to mean there's a, a time of rest? <clears throat> a third question. Notice how Daniel, uh, Gabriel phrases this vision. He says, Daniel, 70 weeks are determined or cut out. 70 weeks are, are partitioned for your people and for your holy city. Seventy weeks to do what? He lists six things. Notice what they are. The first, to finish the transgression. To make an end to sins. That's number two. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Three, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Four, to seal up vision and prophecy. Five, and to anoint the most holy. Six, on your outline, Gabriel lists six things that are to be accomplished within the 70 weeks. And the question that I have as I look at this text is I say to myself, okay, who's responsible for that? Who are responsible for these six items that are to be accomplished during this period of time? Is God responsible to get it done? Are the people responsible to get it done? Questions that we need answers in this text. Turn in the inside portion of your outline. Now notice we mentioned six things that need to get done. Well, if you notice, the first three things that need to get done all seem to have a common theme, don't they? Look at them again. Number one, to finish the transgression. Two, to make an end to sins. Three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. On your outline, tasks one one through three are concerned with rectifying sin. Sin. And the question is, whose sin? And who's supposed to rectify this sin? Who's been sinning? And who is supposed to rectify this sin? Is God supposed to rectify it? Are the people supposed to rectify it? Who's supposed to take care of this? What about the last three tasks? Number four is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five is to seal up vision and prophecy. Number six is to anoint the most holy. 
And so the question there is, uh, or tasks four through six are concerned with holiness and integrity. On your outline, holiness and integrity. And the question is, who is supposed to carry out these tasks? Is this a God thing or something that the people do? Whose role is what here? A few more items on these last three tasks. Look at task four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. I'm asking the question, is this a reference to Jesus? Everlasting righteousness? What does that mean? Might this be a reference to Jesus on question six? What about task five? The, the fifth thing there, there to, uh, that is to be done, to seal up vision and prophecy. Is this a reference to the sealing of the contents of the prophecy that, that Gabriel's giving to Daniel? Probably. If so, what, what does that mean? If it's sealed, what does that mean for those that, that open it later on? Why must something be sealed? Who is to seal it? How about the last task, the, number six, to anoint the most holy? I ask the question, is this a reference to Jesus or to the temple, right? In temple. And the reason I ask the temple there is because the phrase most holy in Hebrew invariably means the temple in the Old Testament. Time and time again, it meant the temple. And so we, we look at this and we think, okay, well, we've got capital letters here, so we know that our, the people in, our, uh, in, in most of our Bible translations interpret it as something very significant, perhaps the Messiah, perhaps the most holy place in the temple. Who's to anoint this person or temple? A final question, question 9 in this verse. Is Gabriel suggesting that these six tasks will be completed or that they ought to be completed? Is Gabriel suggesting that these tasks will be completed or that they ought to be completed? Jump to verse 25. Gabriel continues his vision. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So now we come to a whole new set of questions that, that I, I, I give, that I am trying to reconcile as I deal with this text. The first is this. Which command? Which command... Question 10, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, is Gabriel referring to? Which command? You know, there are many commands in Scripture, uh, many moments in Scripture, where a command was given to go back, to take the Jews back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city, to resettle it as a Jewish city, to, to, to build up the walls, to rebuild the temple. There were many commands. And the question is, which one is Gabriel referring to? Is he referring to Cyrus's command in Ezra 1? What about Darius's command in Ezra 6? Artaxerxes, Ezra 7, and Nehemiah 2. What about Jeremiah's command? What about even Gabriel's command? Is he the one giving the command right now? Which command are we to look at? Question 11. Why does Gabriel break up the weeks? into seven weeks and 62 weeks. Is something to happen between them? Otherwise, why not just say 69 weeks? Why does he say there will be seven weeks and then there will be 62 weeks? Is there something to happen in between those two intervals of time? Why doesn't he just say 69 weeks? Question 12. If seven weeks is translated as seven weeks of years, or 490, that should be 490 years, Excuse me, no, that's, that's correct, 49 years. It would bring us to the year 50, which is the year of what? Jubilee, right in the word jubilee on question 12 in Israel. A year when slaves are freed and the land is restored to its owners. Might there be any jubilee significance here? Okay, so Dan, Gabriel says there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. If it's seven weeks of years, that would be 49 years. And then there will be a 50th year of Jubilee. Is there any significance there on the year of Jubilee, the, the year where slaves were freed in Israel, where the land was restored to owners who had sold it, mainly due to poverty? 
was there something, was there a restorative element at work here that we need to consider? Question 13. Messiah the Prince. This is quite uh, a unique phrase here in uh, as I read it from the New King James, you might see it differently in your scriptures depending on what translation you're looking at. But Messiah the Prince is literally translated, quote, an anointed one. Let me say that again. Messiah the Prince, question 13, is literally translated an anointed one, a prince. So is this Jesus? Some scholars say Cyrus. Others say Zerubbabel. Others say Joshua or Ananias, high priest of Israel, or some other anointed person. Who is this anointed one? One thing is clear. It's it's indefinite. It says an anointed one. It doesn't say the anointed one. Still could be Jesus. Could be someone else. Questions to consider. Fourteen. Does an anointed one, a prince, come after seven weeks or 69 weeks? After seven weeks or the total seven plus 62, 69 weeks? How about question 15? As we consider the identity of an anointed one, a prince, by what calculation, right in the word calculation, does seven weeks and 62 weeks bring us to the time of this anointed one? And and here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. We have scholars who disagree on who this anointed one is. Some say it's Cyrus. Some say it's Zerubbabel, who took the Jews back to Jerusalem. Some say it's one of the the high priests around uh, uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, or or Onias during the second century. Others say, no, no, it's Jesus. It's It's the Messiah himself. And the question here is, in question 15 is, as we consider who this anointed one is, By what calculation, by what scheme of counting, if you will, does seven weeks and 62 weeks bring us to the time of this anointed one? So whoever you say it is, whoever this anointed one is, you have to make sense of the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. You have to say that, well, Gabriel was giving a vision of an anointed one, this person, And that this person was to come in this duration of time. And you need to make sense of that duration of time. It's a very important question to answer. Question 15. How about 16? What are the troublesome times that accompany all of these things? That it says at the end of verse 25. What are those troublesome times as the street, the wall are rebuilt? Jump to question 26. Before I read 26, you may be thinking... Wow, this is really heavy. How many of you are thinking that right now? Good. I want you to feel my pain. I do. I want you to feel the weight of this passage. This is no small text. You are reading right now one of the hardest texts in all of Scripture. You should feel it. You should look at it and say, Okay, Lord, you're going to have to show me something here. We should feel that as a congregation as we approach this. And we should be careful of those who are very dogmatic about this text. Can you already see that? <laughs> I hope so. Look at, look at verse 26. Verse 26. It says this, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war desolations are determined. Okay, a few more questions here on question 26. The first, I've got it at question 17. What does it mean that the anointed one will be cut off? Write the words cut off there. What does that mean? Does it mean death? Does it mean removal of some kind? And actually, let me go even further. Whichever one of those it means, death or removal... Okay? Who's the identity of that anointed one? Who do you think it is? Now you need to make sense of this. How are they cut off? How have they been removed? How have they perhaps died? You need to make sense of it all. Question 18. In what sense is this anointed one not cut off for himself? Notice what it says in the text. 
after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, or an anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. What does that mean? In what sense is this anointed one not cut off for himself? Question 19. Gabriel says, an anointed one will be cut off after the 62 weeks. And my question is, how long after? It says, after the 62 weeks, which taken with the first seven would mean 69 weeks. So after 69 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off, die, removed. How long after? Is there a duration of time there? Question 20. Here's an important one. Who is the prince who is to come? Is he the same as an anointed one, a prince? Or some new prince? Is he the same prince as the one mentioned in verse 25 where it said an anointed one, a prince? Or is he a different prince? Are we dealing with one person or two people? That was question 20. Is he the same as an anointed one, a prince, or some new prince? Question 21. Who are the people of this prince that destroyed Jerusalem and its sanctuary? Notice verse 26. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Who are these people of this prince that destroyed Jerusalem and the sanctuary? 22. Is flood to be understood literally or figuratively? Is flood to be understood literally or figuratively? 23. Uh, The term war indicates a conflict between two people groups. Which ones? It says there's a war. There's a battle. Okay. That narrows maybe some things down. That means we've got to have two groups of people warring against one another. Who are they? And 24, what kind of desolations will occur during this war? And now we come to the last verse. You're almost out of the woods. Hang in there. You're almost out. Verse 27. Then he... Who's he? I don't know. Then he... Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, last set of questions. Here we go. Rapid fire. Who is he? Who is he? In verse 27. Is this referring to an anointed one, a prince? In verse 25. Or the prince who is to come in verse 26? Or perhaps the people of the prince in verse 26 as well? Which can be referred to, by the way, collectively as a singular. So they could be referred to as he. 26. Who are the many? Who are the many? Are these Jews or some other people group? It says he confirms a covenant with many for one week. What is the nature of this covenant? Question 27. What's the nature of it? What does this covenant look like? What kind of covenant is it? Is this a new covenant? Or is this ratification of an old covenant? Is this a new covenant? Or is this strengthening of an existing covenant? 28. The covenant is made for how long? One week. Is this the 70th and final week that Gabriel spoke of? Seems like it, right? He's talked about seven weeks. He's talked about 62 weeks. And now he's talking about one week. Add it all up and he gets 70. Is this the final week of Daniel? The 70th week? This in which the covenant is made? 29. Question 29. Does this 70th week immediately follow the 69th week? Or are these weeks separated by the war of verse 26? Or some other duration of time. Remember that word after there. We, do we have an interval between the two? Or are they successive? Question 30. Who brings, who brings um, 
an end to sacrifice and offering? Who brings an end to sacrifice and offering? Is it the prince of verse 25? The prince of verse 26? Or the people of verse 26? Who does it? 31. Is it significant that this prohibition of sacrifice and offering occurs at the middle of the week? Why is that significant? It says there, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. There's some significance about the center point of that final week. Question 32. What further abominations will accompany the prohibition of sacrifice and offering? It says there will be more abominations. Question 33. Who is the one who makes desolate? Desolate. Who is the one who makes desolate? According to the end of verse 27. And question 34. What, finally, what will be poured out on the desolate? Is this judgment on the desolator? Or is this judgment on those made desolate? Thanks, folks. That's all she wrote. Do you feel my pain? All right. I hope you do. (laughs) I know Tom feels my pain. He feels my pain. Um, Folks, you've just read through the hardest portion in all of Scripture. And we've just asked 34 questions. And you know what? I could come up with 34 more questions if we wanted to. You don't want me to, I know. I can see it in your eyes. You're like, this is way too much. This is the hardest text. One of the hardest texts in all of Scripture. And we just asked 34 questions, all of which have different trajectories and angles and avenues through, and doors through which we could go to find answers. I wanted you to see this. I, 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 I deliberated whether to just, boom, I'm going to pound out Daniel 9, 20-27, and I'm going to tell you what I think, and we're all going to go home and be happy. But you know what? I wanted you to feel this as a, as a congregation because I want us to all know that, uh, that we need to be so careful with God's Word here. Careful with prophecy. Careful with the book of Daniel. And we're going to approach this humbly and carefully. But I want to give you now I want to give you a clue. This is a clue that I see that helps us in the book of Daniel. I've said that part one here, it's about lots of questions and one big clue. On the back of your outline there, one big clue, I want you to write this in. The expectation, the expectation of all who know of Daniel. Jesus talked about Daniel, as a matter of fact. Jesus interpreted Daniel, believe it or not. And we're going to get to some of that next week. But I want to instead focus on something that Jesus said regularly in His ministry. He said this. Look at Mark 1, 14 and 15. It says, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Okay? Galatians 4, Paul writes this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. I could show you 25 more instances in the New Testament where it says, when the fullness of time, when the time was fulfilled, the time is at hand. And it's all about Jesus. And it's all about His coming. And the question that, the the, the statement that I want us to resonate with here for just a moment is, On your outline, the fullness of time requires a reference or something that the time refers to. When when the New Testament says, when the fullness of time came, Jesus showed up, that's significant. That means that there was a reference somewhere in the past that indicated that this was the moment. This was the moment when Messiah was coming. And Jesus said it time and time again. The time is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The end is near. And He shows up. And I want to submit to you, and we won't prove it today, but I want to submit to you that the prophecy of Daniel 9 is uniquely qualified to be this reference. It's not the only reference, mind you. Not at all. Uh, There are many references in Isaiah. Many references in Jeremiah. 
a reference in Deuteronomy for that matter, in Genesis. There are other references that the time has come. But the one reference in Daniel 9, in this prophecy that we are reading now, it is uniquely qualified to explain why Jesus could say, the time is fulfilled. You see, friends, the first century Jews were anticipating the Messiah. It, it, so many of them were. When you look at John the Baptist's ministry in John 1, the people, they're coming out to John. They're being baptized in the, in the River Jordan. They're running out to Him. And you know what they're asking Him? They're asking Him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? That was the question on their mind in the first century. And we need to think, why were they asking that question at this time? Why were they asking that question at this time? And John the Baptist was saying, no, I'm not the Messiah. He's coming. Just wait. When Jesus came on scene and He walked up to the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well, and He walks up to her and starts interacting with her, and and he's, He's dialoguing with her, and she turns to Him and says, oh, well, I know Messiah is coming. I know He's coming. Jesus looks at her and says, it's Me. It's Me. The woman was looking for the Messiah. She says, I know He's coming. I know the time is close. Even, write this down, even Herod in Matthew 2, even Herod, at the time of Jesus' birth, knew that this was around the time Messiah would be born. Turn to Matthew chapter 2 in your Bibles here. We'll conclude in Matthew 2 as we finish up this morning's study. Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. This is right after uh, the Magi show up. And Herod, it says, when Herod the king heard this, Matthew 2, verse 3, when he heard about Jesus, about, about Messiah had been born, when he heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with them, with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Where? So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Even Herod was of the persuasion that this was the time in which Messiah would come. And that brings us to one final group. One final group, right in the wise men or the magi. The wise men on your outline. I've got it listed there. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born King of the Jews. For we have seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. This is so significant. And we, we pass it up because we think it's just folklore or story in the, in the Christmas story. This is so significant. And it's significant for Daniel 9. You see, astrologists, those who were looking at the stars in the ancient Near East, astrologists had wildly varying interpretations of cosmic events back in in and around the time of Christ and before Him and after Him. They had wildly, wildly different interpretations of the sky. They would look up at the sky and they'd say, well, this means this, and this means this. In some cases, stars and cosmic wonders would be understood as a confirmation of battle victory. That you would win the war because of that star right there. In other cases, it was an indication that you would be a successful king and that your land would prosper. And in other cases, it would be that there was going to be a birth of an important person in and around this land. Astrologists received compensation from the state. And that's not insignificant either. Because like good state workers... They were very careful to ensure that their interpretation of any cosmic event was of benefit to the one who was paying them. Which is to say that these men, as they looked at the sky, they checked their pocketbook and then said, Oh, great king, 
It has to do with this great victory you're about to win. Yes, that star right there. Come on. They would not, they would not transgress the king. They would not transgress their ruler. They would not transgress their state. They'd look at the sky and they'd interpret it for the benefit of their state because that's who was paying them. But these wise men, these wise men were very unique. And so convinced were they of the interpretation of this particular star that they traveled hundreds, thousands of miles to a foreign land to declare to a foreign king, Herod, and implicitly to Caesar, that a new king of the Jews had been born. And I say to that, are you kidding? There's no way they do that. There's no way these men travel thousands of miles from the east to Jerusalem, walk in to Herod's palace and say, hey, I uh, just wanted to let you know, one of, uh, there's been an important birth of one of the vassals in your territory, a Jew. He's a king. I wanted you to know that. It was a death sentence for them to go in there and do this. This was Caesar's domain. Herod was his regent. The Jews, they were nothing but a vassal people, subservient to both Rome and the regime of the Herods. And these wise men had the courage of their conviction to enter Jerusalem to declare that a new Jewish king was born. Evidence, listen, the evidence, the evidence that they must have had to do this, to go into that palace, to make that kind of pronouncement, must have been overwhelming to them, or else they would not have risked it. They would not have traveled those miles. They would not have stood before a foreign king and before imperial Rome and said there's a new king coming on the scene. But where would they find such evidence? They had a star. But how could that tell them so much? How would they know that this star, at this precise period of time, indicated that the king of the Jews had been born? I submit to you, and we'll look at it next week. We won't prove it today. But I submit to you that the prophecy in Daniel 9 is what best explains this. I believe it's not coincidence that the very place that Daniel wrote his book, Babylon, Persia, the East, the very place that Daniel penned the vision as he was listening to Gabriel, the very place that he wrote it down happened to be the very place from which the wise men came. It would have been one of the few books that they would have had access to from the Old Testament Scriptures. They would have had access to Daniel. They would have had access to Jeremiah. They would have had access to Ezekiel. And beyond that, not much. Those men, very, it's very unlikely that those men had... Uh, much of the Old Testament Scriptures beyond that. I believe it's not coincidence that the very place Daniel wrote his book was in the East. And I believe the wise men from the East were from this same region, which gave them access to Daniel's writings. I believe they studied Daniel's writings, as did so many of the Jews, which gave, uh, and, and they came to believe, both the wise men and many in Israel, came to believe that Daniel did, in fact, provide a timetable for Messiah's coming, which best explains why John the Baptist was being harassed. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Which best explains the woman at the well saying, I know He's coming. I know it's close. Which best explains why Jesus said the time is fulfilled, why Paul said the time is fulfilled, while Peter said the time is fulfilled. What's fulfilled? The coming of Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. The time was at hand. And even Herod, when three strangers, we don't know that there were three, sorry. When the wise men walked in, and he looks at these guys and says, what are you doing here? They say, oh, we come to worship the new king. He's a Jew. He's one of your, one of your vassals. Herod should have killed them. And instead he believed them. That's not insignificant. That means he knew the time was close. So convinced was Herod that this was the time of the Messiah's birth. That when the wise men never came back to tell him where the Messiah was, Herod ordered the death of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. So convinced was he that this was the time when Messiah was coming. That to protect himself, 
He ordered the death of all the innocents. The evidence that Messiah had come was not merely a star, but a star that coincided with a time frame given by the prophet Daniel. The Jews believed it. The Magi believed it. Even Herod believed it. All of Israel knew Messiah was coming. Why? Because they had a timetable. On your outline, the last thing. All of Israel knew Messiah was coming. Why? Because they had a timetable laid out for them in Daniel chapter 9. As we prepare to leave today, uh, you know, we, we, we're not going to answer this today. We're going to come to it next week. And we're going to approach it humbly. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I do find it significant. The Magi, Herod, etc. We're going to bring some answers next week, but I want you to consider this as you leave today. Because I don't want you to walk away with just head knowledge today. I want you to consider Israel knew Messiah was coming. She knew it. Her people knew it. Herod knew it. The woman at the well knew it. John the Baptist knew it. The Magi knew it. The people of Israel knew He was coming. And they still rejected Him. What about us? Jesus is coming again. Will we be like Israel who knew He was coming and yet failed to prepare for Him? John writes in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in Him that when He appears, you may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Will we be like Israel who knew He was coming and rejected Him? Or will we be a generation that knows He's coming and is ready, ready for His return? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this time in Your Word. Lord, uh, You know my wrestlings uh, with this portion of Your Word. And yeah, I believe, Lord, that Your Spirit is, is guiding us. I know He is. I sense His presence in me. I sense His presence in all of us, Lord. We know that He has been tasked with the duty to help us to enlighten our eyes and to show us things that we didn't see before. God, I pray that as we have asked questions of Daniel 9, now that as we look to answers next week, Lord, that You would be with us in our study. That You would help us to be so very careful, but also to have spiritual eyes to see and understand Your Word and to grow thereby from it. I thank You, Lord, for even the difficult portions of Your Word that stretch us. They cause us to grow. They cause us to deepen our faith and to not, be, to not be Christians who just appreciate the milk of the Word, but also the meat of the Word. I pray, Lord, that we would bear down in this time of study and that we would grasp all that You have for us in the book of Daniel, a book so meaningful to the first century Jews, a book meaningful, I believe, to the Magi themselves, to Herod, to all in that day and age. May it also be meaningful to us as we study it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.